Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. Here at The Art of Charm, we may not have all the answers, but we certainly have some of the questions. And today on Fan Mail Friday, those questions with all they come from you. If this is your first time listening to The Art of Charm, Fan Mail Friday is a great sample of how we operate at AOC, but by no means a full helping of all our show has to offer. Listener interaction is one of our favorite parts of the show. Without you, of course, we would have no show. And our typical content is much more in-depth. We interview well-known top performers in their fields. We work to unpack their methods, their theories, their hard-earned insights. These are people you either know or should know, and we use the longer format to help you understand what processes or steps they used, which helped them become more successful. And we distill those concepts down so that you can apply them in your own life. For a great place to start, check out some of our most popular episodes at theartofcharm.com slash best, where you can find the best of. And we also have the Fundamentals Toolbox, which includes what we like to call the basics of mixed mental arts, including topics such as reading body language and nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. We'll send all this to your inbox if you text CHARMED, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444 in the States, or just go to theartofcharm.com. Or grab the iPhone app, theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android for you Android users. All right, let's cut to it. Hey, Jordan. Being a photographer, I usually add value to people I want to work with and have in my life by shooting something for them. You guys have been amazing since we shot together. You, AJ, who's also becoming a mentor to me, and everyone have been really great people to work with and have become friends. But a lot of the time, I get taken advantage of. Shooting a band and then never getting a response about coming to their shows when they're in town. Shooting with higher-up models, and they leave and never want to grow a friendship outside of that. Either I'm not making a good enough impression with people, or they just want to shoot and leave. I'd like to be the photographer that people enjoy hanging out with outside of just shooting and getting what they want. So, is it how I'm acting, or that I'm giving away too much to people? Thanks, Adam. So this is an interesting question because it can be that perhaps there's something going on here where, oh, I don't know, they thought this was a transactional thing. You're shooting them because you need stuff for your portfolio and they've did their, they've done their part and they go on their way. But part of this is just that's L.A. And then in many ways, that's any big city, but it's especially L.A. What you can do to counteract this in other words, counteract people just getting what they want and then bouncing, ask them to invest a little first and screen out people who won't do that. So one thing you might have them do is meet up with you in advance to discuss the shoot. And if they're like, nah, let's not do that, or oh, we'll just do it right beforehand, you can just say, well, I don't think that's going to really work out for me. And sure, you're going to scare away some people who think that you don't have time, but other people are going to be down to do that. And you're going to find out whether or not someone's cool before you invest time, resources, etc. on the shoot. And have boundaries. You know, look, a lot of these people, they want to come and they want to shoot and they want you to do everything and then they want the photos and they're treating you like an unpaid staffer when you are above that at this point. But you got to be careful not to keep score. You got to be careful here that you're not offering something, hey, I'd love to shoot you, and then dot, 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 we should hang out. And they're like, what? Why would we do that? You know, you have to be careful not to keep score and try to make friends by buying it, not with money, but by photography, frankly, in this case, and also not trying to make everything a transactional relationship. And it sounds like some of these people are actually doing that. But on that same token, 
in the, any business, you got to get used to helping 10 people and having nine just never help you back. It's okay at first if you're getting some value from the situation and you enjoy helping them. If it's really, really one-sided, then just don't do it at all. Uh, it's all right at first. Look, AOC, this show, we rarely have guests help share in return. Rarely. Other than a tweet, which does nothing. Now we're more picky, of course, but it's okay because when people do share, it does it can be really huge. I mean, a lot of these guests are really big, and, and their tweets or their emails or their endorsements or their introductions to other guests, they can really, really help. So you got to avoid being transactional. And Jason, I feel like you might have had a very similar situation because you're also a photographer. Yeah, when I started out as a professional photographer back in my, oh, long, long ago, we won't even get into that. I used to be just like this. Uh, I used my camera to get me access to places and meet people. And I'd give them prints because that's what we did in, in the old days. I had a dark room in my basement and we made prints, but I never expected anything in return. And But what I got out of it was more than I put into it because I never kept score and I never even thought of wanting anything in return. I always thought of a shoot with them as them doing me a favor because they're sitting for me and taking their time so I could get better at my craft. And I think that humility is why I still, to this day, have friends that I met through taking pictures back in the day. And I think if he like maybe does a little bit of a, you know, perspective tweak on that, it it might do him a little better on the happiness scale for when he goes out to take these pictures with people. And just don't don't keep score, don't ask for anything in return, and have fun and be yourself. You know, that's the best way to sell yourself. I you know what I mean I know we talk about being yourself is, is the worst is advice sometimes. ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just just go out and have fun. Honestly, yeah, forget the be yourself thing. Just go out and have fun. Take some pictures and make art. That's what you're in it for. Make art. And when you make art together, you create a bond. Yeah, I think the problem, I think what he's saying here is he wants to create a foothold in the social world in L.A. and the bands aren't reciprocating this and that. And a lot of that is just L.A. selfishness. You know, you can't take it personally. That's industry selfishness. There, there are so many photographers out there now. Everybody's got a camera. You know, it's one of those things where it's like you can't go to a concert with a camera and expect to get any kind of special treatment anymore. That That's just never going to happen. I think he's shoot. I know what he, some of the projects, to be clear, he's shooting their album cover, giving it to them and then says, yeah, when you come back on tour in three months, give me a call. And they go, yeah, great. And then they don't. OK. Or he'll email them and say, hey, I heard you're coming back and they'll just ignore his email. Or his texts. Then just get paid for your work and, and move on. Get That's, paid for I mean, your th work. Then be yeah. professional, yeah. Yeah, because he's here's, here's the sort of issue that I'm seeing. He's in this world where he's good enough to be a pro. I mean, we paid him for our photography, and it's awesome. He's He is a pro. Not good enough to be a pro. He is a pro. Okay. But I think he does some donation stuff because he wants these people to be part of his network, and then they're just like, screw you when they get what they want. Okay, okay. I, I apologize then. I thought he was an amateur, an up-and-coming amateur. If he's a professional that takes money for his work, and he's trying to use his work to extend his social sphere, that's the wrong thing to do. If you're a professional photographer, be a professional. You're never going to get anywhere giving your professional work away. I agree. And in fact, read Stephen Pressfield. If you find yourself even remotely in this situation... There's Stephen Pressfield has this book called The War of Art, and a lot of it's just this sort of flowery diatribe, but one of the main things was professionals get paid. Yep. It just doesn't, you love your art, you do this, you do that, and, and but you have to get paid. And I thought that was a weird thing, but then when I examined the rest of what he was writing and the explanation for it, it was because if you don't get paid, 
you languish in this weird amateur zone where you feel like it's not worth anything and other people agree with you and they treat you like crap and then you never quite get your foothold in the professional world in the way that you should. If a band can't afford you, you can negotiate on price, but don't barter, you're a professional. You know, if they wanna give you tickets to their next show, fine if that's what you're getting paid to do. But don't get, don't accept a promise in return for hard work. That's not gonna fly, because you're a professional. Yeah, you're a professional. Get paid for your work. If they can't pay you, don't do the work. Yeah. Honestly, if you do want to barter, that's up to you, but you are going to go down a slippery slope, own your work, be a professional, and if they can't pay, walk away. Yeah, yeah, it's not worth it, because these, no one's going to be your friend because you hooked them up like that. They might appreciate that you supported them, and they, but they might not support you back. But if you can negotiate something where they pay you a smaller amount, or they pay you over time, et cetera, you can still support them in that way. Nobody says it has to be free. There's so much here. I mean, I feel like everybody yeah. who starts a business gets burned by this, so don't feel bad. No, definitely, yeah. I spent I spend the better part of this entire decade that we've been running the Art of Charm <laughs> getting screwed on stuff like this. So trust me, it's not, it's not you, first of all, and it's a lesson that a lot of us have to learn just like a hundred times before we go, oh yeah, I should stop doing that crap because it's never working. Yep, yeah. because the people that you're working with have already learned that lesson and can be taking advantage of just for that, that sure. one point. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, next up. Dear Jordan, I've been listening to your show for years and I find myself in a weird place. As you can see from my email signature, I work for a company that everyone's heard of, doing something that everyone asks about, and a product that is universally loved. You must be working for Vagina. Um, <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> anyway, since I'm young and got this job early on, I picked up some sort of rock star mindset that isn't serving me. Somewhere in the game, when I got this job, I decided I was better than a lot of my friends and started behaving like a total prick. Tisk tisk. Mm -hmm. I blew off old friends in favor of people I thought would be more fun, cool, attractive, whatever, and even broke things off with a great girl because I figured I could do better <sighs> with my new life. You know, yeah, I'm a rock star. Why not? Oh, man. I even treated my own relatives like crap because my ego got so big. Well, after a while, surprise, I'm still not happy with myself. I realized that all along I was making up for my own insecurity by finally feeling like I'd gotten to a place that I deserved, and I wanted to make sure that everyone else knew it. As you can imagine, this was a recipe for disaster, and I'm even less happy now than I was before, and much, much more alone. What can I do? I miss my friends, and I see them on Facebook having fun with one another, and I realize that I am the one who screwed this all up, and I want nothing more than, ironically, to be back where I was. I'd trade it all to just have Taco Tuesday with the guys again. Any ideas? I'm willing to try anything at this point. Thanks, Lonely Larry. Yikes. Are you just, are you picking all the questions that rewrite my past this week? Why, does this one resonate with you as well? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, man. <laughs> you know what? I feel like I've gone through a smaller version of this before as well. I, I nipped it in the bud right away because somebody called me out on it, I think. I, I'm trying to even remember, but it was a long time ago. But, oh, man. Yeah. Three, three, it was about a year and a half as a website programmer. My first big job was the head of Paramount Motion Pictures website programming. Wow. And I turned exactly into this guy. Oh, man. Exactly. Because I was 24 and... You know, two years ago, I was making $18,000 a year working at Kinko's. I get a job on the Paramount lot making like $75,000. 
sitting there with movie stars thinking that I am the king of the world. Yeah, guess what? You're not. And that was Union, too, right? So you get, like, acupuncture and gold leaf eye masks no. as part of your... No. I wish. I wish. I was actually what they called a backlot hire. So I still had to sit there with all the carpenters and all the electricians every week to get my paycheck handed out by the main gate Ugh. in an envelope. You know, it, I was I was not part of the quote unquote team, but I thought I was. Backlot hire sounds like casting couch. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> you do get you do get screwed in, in more ways than one. <laughs> Backlothires.com. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, <laughs> look, here here's the upside, man. You realize, Larry, that you need to stop, which is awesome. I mean, props to you for not just melting down or hitting rock bottom or you know, finding out from your third wife that you're a giant douchebag. The good news is you can apologize to people and start off on the right foot. You don't have to buy your way back into forgiveness. But you do need to make the first move. Grab dinners with people. Have dinner parties. Be a charming host. And don't try to get people to like you. That's not the point. The point is to get them to see that you're not a prick anymore and it's going to take a while for people to maybe come around. Here's what I think you can really use. A champion. A champion will help you a lot here. Enlist the help of other close friends who know your current situation and your mindset, and they can convince other people to come. Because if everyone's like, oh, I'm not going to Larry's house, he's insufferable. If you have someone they trust who you've had a heart-to-heart with, similar to your letter, but you know maybe a little bit more in-depth, they might be able to say, no, 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 look, he told me. He's like, he's lonely, he knows he's been a dick this whole time, and he really wants to change things. So why don't you give him a chance? You know, Why don't you come over? And worst case, you can leave. A champion can really help you do that. If they explain things for you, they don't have, it's not about them taking your word for it at that point. You can even thank people for coming and you can apologize to the entire group. If it's a whole group of people that you used to be friends with, but you blew it, you can apologize to the whole group. Even if there are people there who you owe nothing to, it's okay if they know your past. It's even better if they see you atone for your past. And look, you can't undo your past, but you can form a new reputation and new relationships with new people. Doesn't always have to be your old friends. And also accept that some of the people in your past, they just might feel burned. They might not want to hear it. And that's okay. There's no sense crying over spilled milk. And uh, to that effect, I've got a cool little infographic here from the Gottman Institute about how to give a proper apology. We can link this. It's a Facebook link. We can link this in the show notes. Basically, you don't apologize for someone else's feelings. You don't say, I'm sorry you're mad. That's not an apology, it's condescending. You should apologize for your own actions and your attitude. I'm sorry I was rude is an apology that takes ownership. Be specific about what you did wrong. I'm sorry for whatever made you mad is not gonna work, right? You have to be specific. Don't add an excuse to your apology because this is a really tempting one. I'm sorry I was rude, but I was really irritated. That means you're not really sorry. You feel justified for the way you acted and you expect to be excused. One way to remember this is that when you say, I'm sorry, but you're just really a sorry, but, and do ask for (laughs) forgiveness when you apologize saying, I'm sorry on its own is just a statement. It requires no response. Will you forgive me is a humble request that can rebuild a relationship. And when you ask someone to forgive you, wait and listen and be prepared for them to say in response, I need a minute. I'm not there right now. It's not going to happen right now. When you're in the wrong, you are never owed forgiveness. That's super important to know. When you are in the wrong, you are never owed forgiveness. So be grateful when you actually do get it. I have employed this exact same tactic many times after my aforementioned uh, run into douchebaggery. Works like a charm. 
Humility and asking for forgiveness and knowing that nobody owes you a damn thing and you're the one that's on the receiving end of their forgiveness really goes a long way to getting back in their good graces. Awesome. All right. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Next up. Hi, Jordan. I started listening a few years ago when I was in the Peace Corps. Since I've been back, I've become a software engineer. I think I'm incredibly lucky because my career gives me a lot of financial security. Recently, I've been having a problem, though, which is boredom at work. My first tech job lasted two years, but the duration since then has been getting shorter and shorter. I was at my previous company for six months before I left. I was terribly bored every time I switched jobs. I strongly prefer being a creator, not a maintainer. I join a company thinking I'll be creating awesome stuff, but after six months, I get pushed into legacy code and the maintainer duty. I can get away sandbagging, but I'd rather not. That's not the person I want to be. If I end up surfing Reddit for more than three hours a day, I know I need to leave. My friends think I should be my own boss or get a PhD. The tech industry doesn't mind, or at least I don't think it does, uh, all of my job hopping. Are my expectations unrealistic? Am I getting bored irrationally? Or is my boredom a product of something else? Thanks. Yeah, this is an interesting question because... It, maybe you do need to go into a different field or maybe you could do your own thing. If you do, you got to start as a side hustle. Don't quit your job and go all in on something. Start something in your spare time. And the good news is it sounds like you have a lot of spare time. If you're surfing Reddit for three hours a day, maybe you can work on that side project. And look, I know that it's like, well, you're stealing from your employer, you're stealing time. But you're st if you're sitting there doing nothing productive anyways, then yes, it is a gray area. Actually, it's not even gray. It's definitely stealing time. But the problem is if you've got nothing else to do during that time, you might as well actually work on something productive, especially if it gets you in some tangible way better at the current job that you are doing or could reasonably be stated to do so. So yeah, there's a lot on side hustles. There's a lot on finding pro passion projects and things like that. Definitely check out Chris Gullabo. He's the master of side hustles, we'll link to his work here. We had him on the show a while back as well. And Jason, what do you have to say about this? I feel like you've been in jobs like this as well. 
Uh, Jordan, would you hold my beer for a second? I got a little. <laughs> yeah. I got a little insight on this one. Sure. For 22 years in the tech industry, I understand his boredom, and he's doing it wrong. When you come into a company and they give you legacy code, what you have in front of you is a history of their problems that they have solved along the way and still have code that needs those problems solved. By digging into that legacy code and not just maintaining it, as he's putting, you know, it's like, oh, this is the worst job. I get to see all the secrets of the company and I'm just bored with it. I just want to go make the shiny new thing. You're missing the biggest opportunity because when you have all of the, the legacy code in front of you for the problems that they used to have, you can learn what the company is doing. You can learn all of the technical solutions that they've come up with along the way. You can make those better. And once you take those legacy solutions and you fix them instead of dicking around on Reddit all day, then you can move up to the next level and the next level. But you also have a fundamental understanding of how the company works. So if you really do want to be at the top tier making the new stuff, the fundamental understanding of how everything works is what those guys at the top already have. So the guys that you're gunning after, they know all this stuff already. So you need that learning curve to get where you want to go. If you're just bored and want to surf around on the internet all day, you're never going to be in tech for very long. It is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. The people are very smart, and the people at the very top know their stuff. So if you're going to bounce from job to job to job, get out of the business because you're not going to last in tech. I'm, I'm just going to tell you right now, after 20-some-odd years, it doesn't work that way. The people that move up are the people that come in at the ground floor, learn everything, and, and skyrocket to the top because they have the interest in what the company's doing. And if you don't have an interest in what the company's doing, you should have taken the job in the first place. Ah, interesting. Great insight, Jason. Thanks for that. That's super interesting. I, I wouldn't have even thought about that. I don't know that industry that well. Well, you're very welcome. All right. Shall we move on? Yes, we shall. Next up. Hi, Jordan. I love the show. It's helped me more than I can ever repay you. I've rated the show and written a review in iTunes as well as sharing with friends. Also, I do intend on getting to a live training hopefully next year. That's awesome. I appreciate the review. I definitely appreciate the note, and we would love to see you at boot camp. I'm writing because I want to adopt the just put everything on your calendar system that you said you use. That seems like it'll work for me. I have two questions relating to that, and I hope you could help me out with it. First, how do you estimate how long a thing will take? I know that humans tend to be very bad at that and wondered if you had any tips. And second, what do you do if you have extra time at the end of a block? Or how do you deal with a situation if you need more time? Thanks for everything, Tony. So, Tony, what Tony's referring to is my work religion that says everything has a time and place that lives on the calendar. Every task has a time uh, and place on the calendar. So I don't have to-do lists that say things like send emails. I make a block of X number of hours or minutes that says send emails. So it lives in my calendar. So if I need to move something, I know exactly how much time I need to find later. And I don't have things where I go, the day just got away from me. There are not enough hours in the day because I know exactly how long these tasks are going to take and I can push things out as long as I need to so I don't get overbooked, overburdened, crazy stressed. I mean, don't get me wrong. That still happens. It just happens a lot less. And I don't end days going, I can't even make sense of it all. That doesn't happen yet. Wait till I have kids though, right? So the answer to your question, how do I estimate how long something will take? I either plan for the task itself, such as, all right, I've got 100 emails. I'm going to do two hours worth. I don't care how many that is. I don't have to hit zero inbox in two hours. I'm just going to do two hours of email and then I'm going to move along with my life knowing I made a big dent in it. We are bad. Humans are very bad at estimating how long things are going to take. 
if I don't really know at all, like take car to shop, I might budget three hours for that. And if I get it done in 45 minutes, then the answer to your next question is, wow, I've got all this extra time. Well, great. What's my next task? Can I start it early? Does it make sense to do that? Do I have miscellaneous things like reading that can fit into any amount of time? Am I hungry? Do I want to have a leisurely lunch? Do I want to go work out now instead of later on and then have a big block later on where I can go for a walk or stare out the window blankly and uh, wonder what I'm going to do with my life? That all, all of those things can be done in spare time. I don't think any of us really need to worry about what we have to do with extra time at the end of a block. If you've got extra time at the end of a block and you've got like seven minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, do some email. There's always plenty of that. Or if you get a lot of email, when you send a lot of email, then don't do email because activity breeds activity in email. So you got to be careful because if sending seven minutes of email is going to create 21 minutes of work later, then you should block it and do it at another time. But reading, a lot of us need to do more reading, need to do more learning. We need to do more news or professional reading, especially things like that. I always try to squeeze those into blocks. And the way to do that is to have it with you all the time. In other words, have books on your phone, have audiobooks on your phone, have some of the other work that you need to do on your phone. That makes it a lot easier. So I tend to read a lot. People always go, how do you read two to three books a week. The answer is when I have 20 minutes, I don't surf Facebook. I read. Uh, when I'm in the restroom and I'm waiting for somebody else to meet me somewhere, I'm reading. I'm not sitting there going, oh, look, Instagram and stuff like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that if you enjoy doing it, but that's how I get a lot more done than most people, and I suggest that you do the same. So that's how I predict everything. It's all, it, you're right, I'm wrong a lot, but I make that extra time productive as well. Oh, and that kind of goes into the next question here, it looks like, Jason. How many books do you guys read every week? That's a good question. And it's funny that this dovetails in there because I didn't even notice that was the next one. <laughs> uh, not that anyone's going to believe me, but I, I did not scroll up here. Anyway, I Serendipity. Read, I, yeah, I, I read two to three books a week, sometimes four, uh, maybe even more, just depends on how much time I have. Uh, not all the books are for the show. Most of the time they are. I do always read nonfiction because real life is interesting enough for me so far. I do a lot of audiobooks, and I do so while walking outside, cycling, uh, sometimes at the gym, depending on how close attention I need to pay to that book. If it's just fun, then, you know, whatever. I treat it like a podcast, but if it's something for the show, then I usually take notes, which means I'm walking or sitting or laying around. And I do deep dives on things like Vladimir Putin, North Korea, uh, space and quantum physics or something like that. And this is in addition to the things I read for the show, like I said. I usually use books or longer articles in New Yorker or the Wall Street Journal as well. I read those in the morning to try to get my brain wrapped around stuff. I never read pulp crap. I don't read the things you see from Outbrain or BuzzFeed or anything like that. Uh, not there's anything wrong with that. It's just not my style. The problem is I buy a new book maybe once every day or every other day, and obviously I can't read them all as fast as I'm buying them. I think I've bought like nine books in the last three days. It's You're just, a hoarder. I, I'm You're a, hoarder. a hoarder. But I, I, a lot of them are for the show, so it's like, ooh, oops. You know. So I've got a big stack of like 85 books here. It's not getting any smaller. But you know what? That's okay, especially because Audible will let you refund something within a year. And even then, they probably are flexible on that. So you know, you can return stuff that you're just never going to read. And a lot of the times, I'll be on planes and I'll knock down like two books. Just on one plane ride, I'll knock down two books. So I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not too worried about it. I read a ton. And here's the thing. I know what people are thinking. I'm just not a reader. I wasn't a reader. Jason, when did I start reading a ton? Like two years ago? Two years ago. 
Two years ago, yeah. you would never read anything. I would read all the books and I would do the show notes and leave you the questions. And then one day a flip switched in your head. You're like, I should start reading the books. I'm like, thank you. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't have to. And now you can't stop. I can't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Sorry, not sorry. I read so much. <laughs> I read so much now. It's it's bananas. And I love it. I love it, love it, love it. My addictive personality has now officially moved over to reading. And the thing is with audiobooks, because I my other impediment to reading was I just couldn't focus on a page. I couldn't stare at a screen for that long. And then I got a Kindle and it was easier. But then it was like, there just wasn't enough input or a noise would distract me. Now I've got my headphones in. I'm in my own world. I can just, I can barely walk and chew gum, but I can walk and read. It's amazing. It's really, really super, super helpful. If if I had, and I should have known because I listened to books on tape in the 90s and then I just didn't do squat with those for 20 years. And now I'm like, oh yeah, books on audio, duh. It's just, ah, what a waste. I wasted decades just, well, of course I was in law school. I read a bunch of crap I didn't want to read, but Ugh. Yeah, Jason, you're you're a heavy reader as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm definitely a heavy audio book reader because I've got partial dyslexia or, or mild dyslexia. I guess it's not partial. partial it's mild. It's half. Yeah. I'm half lexic. I'm half lexic. Yeah, I have a you know, that's why it takes me some time to do our notes for this show. We've talked about that uh, when I'm reading for the show. It takes me a while, but uh, I love audio books. I've always loved them. I've been a fan of audible.com since 2003. And my, you know, until I met you and you got into it, my library was the one that nobody could come close to. I'm <laughs> over 600 books in Audible at this point, and you're probably going to do that in the next week because you're addicted. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to ask you before we keep going, are you on uh, Goodreads? I am not. And the reason is because it just seemed like a distraction where I was getting more recommendations and I bought, I remember one two day period, I bought 17 books and I was like, okay, this is not going to help me do anything <laughs> ever. Yeah. And the other thing was sometimes I write really negative reviews of books that I think suck. And there's a problem in that I don't want the author, uh, if they write another book later, or if I want to have them on the show, for them to go, yeah, I saw you wrote a review on Goodreads and you hated my work and you think that this is poorly researched. I just didn't want that. And the third reason is because a lot of times I don't want people to know what I'm reading because if we are going to have that person or those that group of people on the show, I, I kind of don't want every other podcast to go ahead and get those guests first and then piss them off so they won't do podcasts anymore or just jump us. So yeah, I kind of stayed yeah, off so that. Those whole are thing. all, those are all valid reasons that yes. most people don't have, right? Most people don't have to worry about what their review, what the author thinks of their review. They don't have to worry about uh, people jumping them to an interview and they don't have to, most people can restrain themselves and not buy every book that they see. Yeah. We should make a, a, a stealth Jordan account though for, so, cause you read so many books that I think the audience would really like to see your, your reviews on the books that you've already read for people who are maybe already on the show. We'll get yeah. an intern to, we'll get an intern to work on that. Yeah, one that would be cool. I would totally do that. Cause I do review every book. I don't write long reviews normally. Um, There's no need. Yeah. You're I not do a book reviewer. I start this, suck, this is great. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Need. And if something is terrible, I write why. I don't just be like, I hate this because politics. I'll write, I hate this because the narrator, you know, had a potato in their mouth the whole time they did the book. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I'll do reviews on either side of the spectrum, either great or or not. 
But anyway, yeah, I do read three books a week religiously. I do two fiction, one nonfiction. Gotcha. Because I listen to so many podcasts that my nonfiction quotient is taken up with podcasting. Yeah, I hear you. So I need I need those two novels, usually either science fiction or spy related. That's those are the two genres that I love. I've read every Poirot and Sherlock Holmes novel multiple times. So even now it's like I'll go back to those or John Lacar or things like that. But yes, and one nonfiction in our genre. But uh that's it. Yeah. I, I love reading. We I mean this is that's one thing about this show is that we are readers. Yes. Yes. And I encourage other people to be, even if they think they can't, try the audio route, you know, try and do that. I love the combination of podcasts and reading. I think a lot of people, I talk to a lot of people that go, oh, I read audiobooks now. I don't listen to shows. That's a mistake because you do need Total dialogue. Yeah. You need dialogue around these things. You can't just read books. You'll turn into a weird academic unless you're just reading <laughs> fiction, which I think is also a mistake. So, hey, Yeah. Yeah. You got to have a balance. Everything is a, everything is a balance. It's very Zen of you. And also when you have a bad audiobook, you know, most people, when they start out reading audiobooks, they're at one uh, X. If you get a crappy reader, just bump it up to 1.25 takes everything away. It yeah. generally, it generally just makes that book listenable. It does. I agree. I agree. And then, Oh, and, and finally, just for people who are on the fence about the science behind, Oh, if I'm listening to a book versus reading a book, I'm not getting as much out of it. We're going to link this in the show notes there. There are studies that have been done that say you get just as much out of listening to a book as you do from reading a book. So just I just want to put that out there to plug the naysayers before we even get into those feedback uh, emails. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just don't listen at 3x unless you're super, super experienced with the content that's already in there. There's going to be a re there's going to be a retention study on that. That's for sure. Speaking of reviews. Holy crap. We just passed our 10,000th review in iTunes. So super, super huge thank you to all those who did review the show. And if you haven't, please do so. A lot of negative attention comes with the impact we've been having, which I found is just like annoying, but a fact of life. Because whenever someone gets in the spotlight, there's lots of people that somehow they feel hurt personally by this and they decide to make that known. So again, you can find the review instructions. We would love to hear from you to combat some of these one stars. It would be great. Theartofcharm.com slash review will show you how to review us on iTunes if you're not sure how. And I would really appreciate that because yes, we hit 10,000, but the thing is we want to make sure that most of them are positive reviews as well. Hope you all enjoyed that. Don't forget, you can email us Friday at theartofcharm.com to get your questions answered on the air. I keep everyone anonymous, and you can either make up your own funny name or we can do it. Uh, it does seem that Jason and I are much less creative than all of you, though, so just keep that in mind when you submit. If you've got your own advice for some of the people you've heard from today, let me know. If it's something that can help everyone, I may read it on the show. A link to the show notes for this episode can be found at theartofcharm.com slash FMF114. I'd love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at The Art of Charm, and it's a great way to engage with the show. And Jay, you're on Twitter, right? I'm on Twitter at JP Def, and you can check my podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, every Monday. We are in iTunes or go to GOG.show to find out more. Great. And of course, we have the AOC Challenge. You can text the word charmed, C H A R M E D, to 33444, or go to slash challenge. We're teaching you how to be a networker, how to make better personal and professional connections, how to increase your charisma, your social capital. It's for both guys and gals. And it's free. It's not a paid thing. It's just the service we provide. So text the word CHARMED, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444 or go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. Quick shout out to Paul Kahoro in Nairobi, Kenya, 
who assures me that, yes, they do have podcasts in Kenya. I'd love to check out Kenya sometime. Sounds awesome. A little safari, anyone? And Chase Jarvis, the Chase Jarvis, who said he's a fan of the show as well. I like that. I dig. Thank you, Chase, for writing in. And we'll be doing a creative live course as well in July, July 27th, about networking. So we'll be posting some more details on that as well pretty soon. Are you in a strange land listening to my familiar voice? If so, hit me up and I'll shout you out. More from AOC at theartofcharm.com, including info on our live residential boot camps that we run every single week here in LA. If you really want to dig into this stuff and work on your AOC skills with us as your coaches, that's theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Now stay charming, get out there and connect and leave everyone better than you found them. Booyah. Boom. Boom.